everybody. Welcome to today's One Million by One Million podcast. One Million by One Million, as you know, is the first global virtual accelerator in the world for startups, and we operate out of Silicon Valley with the mission of helping a million entrepreneurs reach a million dollars and beyond in annual revenue all over the world. And in this podcast, we are going to be talking to Yanev Suisa, partner of SignWave Ventures. Yanev, welcome. It's great to have you. Thanks. It's great to be here. So tell us about SignWave Ventures. What is the focus of your firm? How big is the fund? What size investments do you make? Sure. Well, SignWave is actually a little bit unique of a model from other venture funds, which I know a lot of people say and doesn't always sound that way, but it is quite different. What we do is um, we work with startups, mainly enterprise technology startups, so software startups, similar to the ones Mm -hmm. in your one one million by one million network. Um, Mm -hmm. And we look for commercial technologies um, where we can help them as a VC firm navigate both commercial partnerships and customers and also public sector partnerships and customers. So we're big believers that uh, the overlap between the private sector and the public sector is only increasing and that mm-hmm. enterprise technologies across the board need to pay attention to public sector in terms of them being giant customers, in terms of their competitors going after that capital, which can be very sticky, in terms of regulatory risk and things of that nature, which you even see in the consumer world, like with Uber and others. Um, mm-hmm. So we end up coming in and using our significant resources and kind of ecosystem of strategic partners to advance those startups. So we Interesting. Have and you're, expert, yeah, go ahead. you're located in Washington, D.C. We are. We have an office in both Silicon Valley and Washington, D.C., but the main headquarters is in Washington. Okay. That's, that's actually interesting. And how big is the fund? The fund, we, we, we um, manage over $60 million in capital. We're on our first fund right now. Uh, we've mm-hmm. done a few deals already. Typically, we write a check of around, well, so we do seed A and B. We will do some later stage stuff, but mainly we focus on seed A and B, always alongside another top tier investor in our syndicate who we sometimes bring in, who sometimes brings us in. And our typical check size, you know, in a seed round, it could be as small as 250K. Uh, on average, you know, an A is usually, you know, around 3 million, 3 to 5 million. And then, of course, up from there as you grow. And uh, what uh, do you lead uh, these rounds? We can lead rounds, and we have. Um, we always syndicate with a top-tier partner of ours. So usually mm-hmm. folks want that partner to lead because they're usually the bigger guy, like a NEA, like my former firm, or an Andreessen Horowitz or something like that. So usually those guys lead, but we do often lead when it's an internal round or when they want different pricing or for some strategic But none of reason. those funds that you mentioned, NEA, and I've worked with NEA for many years. Uh, they invested in one of my companies. I've funded other uh, clients through NEA. That's a very big fund that can only do much later stage work. So if you do seed, series A, that's not NEA's sweet spot, right? No, that's not true at all, actually. So I worked at NEA for about a decade before starting SineWave, and actually NEA is um, very closely involved in SineWave, as are some of the other firms. Well, it's a typical, um, a lot of the seed funds and smaller funds and entrepreneurs who've been burned sometimes like to 
kind of harp that these larger funds like Sequoia and NEA and Andreessen are all later stage vehicles. But actually, the majority of NEA's companies are A, investments. They do at least 30 or so seed deals a year. Um, Sequoia, I imagine, does even more deals, though I don't know the exact numbers. Um, so they do do everything. The difference with a big fund is you de-risk your financing because what they do is they'll put some in a seed round and then also in an A round and then also in a B round and also in a C round. So for them, they're looking for the opportunity to put, they do put a lot of money into a company, but they do it in multiple rounds rather than all in one, like some people like so, to think. Um, so let's actually take the example of working with, uh, the, working on a deal with you and NEA as co-investors. Sure. Um, how would that play out? Um, obviously, given NEA's fund side, they can't put partners on the boards of these seed deals. So what? How, help us understand who prices the deal, who leads the deal, who gets on the board of the deal on NEA's behalf. Your side, I understand, is much, much more straightforward. Yeah, well, great question. We work with all different kinds of parties. So, and, and our deals kind of go three ways, the way we syndicate with the partner firms. And obviously in the seed, seed kind of the top seed investors tend to be a little different than the top A and B investors. But we, we syndicate with them. And so sometimes we find a deal and we bring it to them. Sometimes they find a deal and they bring it to us. And sometimes we target a deal and we say, hey, I want to be in this deal because I think I can really help this company let us in. The way it would typically work um, is, you know, the, the big investor takes the board seat. Usually in our partnerships, we don't um, take board seats at SignWave. We take observer seats. So we like to be in the board meetings to hear what's going on. So when you mention you're trying to work with Amazon, I could say, well, great. We know the senior folks at Amazon. We can help you. Or you're trying to work with Department of Defense. Great. We know the, you know, the folks at Defense. We can help you. So we like to be there to know that we can help, but we don't require a board seat at SignWave. Uh, the big fund would take a board seat. For their seed investments, they typically, yeah, for, I think this is probably where you're going. For their seed yeah. investments, they don't um, often take board seats, but there is always at least, so to be fair, I grew up at NEA as a VC, so I know how they do it a little bit, um, and I don't want to speak for Which them. Which is why I'm but, probing you on this topic. <laughs> yeah, but my, my knowledge of, at least my experience with NEA um, is that they, you know, a great investor at the seed stage. And what they do is there's typically a partner or a, or a principal level person who sponsors the seed stage deal. And that partner or principal level person will still be active. Usually seed companies don't have boards, period, right? So they end up being there to, to be helpful, to answer questions, to help you grow. Um, and then if, they, if the seed company does well and graduates to a series A, then that's when the board seed would happen. Okay, so this is more, um, none of, neither of you are taking board seats. I, I don't completely agree with this statement that seed companies don't have a board because most seed companies we work with do have boards. But, uh, but I think it, the model you're describing of how you and NEA or you and Andreessen um, and any other permutation as, uh, of uh, funds works is neither of you take a board seat at the seed, uh, seed stage. If it graduates to Series A, then somebody takes the board seat. The I, would say one, I would say one caveat. I do think it varies. Sometimes, sometimes VCs do take board seats. But usually at the Angel, at least from my experience in the, and we invest in domestic companies, so I know you guys have a very international network that has, you know, variations in how 
kind of um, angel rounds and angel companies are structured, there's always a, uh, there's always a group of advisors, right? They're not necessarily a board. Sometimes they're formalized in a board seat structure. Yeah. Um, I, what I usually experience is kind of there's usually the, you know, three to five key advisors, and those can be either angels or people strategically relevant, you know, independent type folks. Um, and in yeah, that sense, the board of advisors, absolutely, there is board of advisors, but, uh, you know, there's a lot of micro VCs that are taking board seats. There are tons of micro VCs Correct. that it are happens. taking board seats. And I, would think, and I think some of the big VCs will take board seats if you have them and it makes sense. But often what I find in these rounds, domestically at least, is that they tend to end up being an advisor like the other. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. The large funds in seed stage cannot take board seats. Just the economics of you know, having such big funds to manage and, uh, you know, such small amounts of capital deployed at the yeah, seed stage doesn't make sense for them to take the board seats. But the micro VCs who are managing smaller funds whose main, you know, agenda is working with the seed, post-seed, sometimes pre-seed, they're even pre-seed funds, who, you know, whose whole agenda is to make that company successful from that point on and they are taking board seats. So which actually segues into our, uh, the point um, that we are seeing a lot of, and I want to get your comments on this, um, sure. is, uh, you know, we are, uh, when I was, when I did, like, when NEA funded my company in 1998, 98, 99 time frame, they used to be seed and Series A. And now there is friends and family, pre-seed, seed, post-seed, pre-series A, then series, and then, of course, the rest of it. So, and, and firms are specializing. So, I mean, we've talked to VCs, small VCs who are focusing on post-seed. Somebody else is focusing on pre-series A. What is the difference between post-seed and pre-series A? And, and they have articulated for themselves, you know, what the metrics are for by their definition. So that's, um, you know... That is the trend of the industry, and uh, and there are three, four hundred micro VC funds operating in this general spectrum of early stage investment. So, uh, my question to you is, how do you see this segmentation from your point of view? And um, and while you said you operate in seed, if you were to look at this segmentation, where would your sweet spot be? Well, first, I'll congratulate you on raising money in the 98-99 time frame and then going through the craziness that happened <laughs> economically. I raised money many times that. between, yeah. between <laughs> well 95 and 2000. I made raised money many times. It was a tough time frame. But, yeah, so I could talk a little bit. So I have a particular opinion here that I don't think is necessarily what everyone or the press or, or you know, the popular buzzword would be, but I think it's probably true. Uh, I believe there's, so in terms of this, everybody's, I, maybe I'll put, put it in two parts. The first part I'd say is you have a lot of dumb money in the venture world, um, particularly in the past few years. And the reason for it is because um, it was very hard to make money in the, and still is hard to make money in the public markets. And so a lot of folks came, you know, a lot of the big investment shops, the big uh, mutual funds, the big, you know, these kind of typical public markets investors like, well, we're investors. We'll just move earlier in the chain, right? Companies are taking longer to go public, so we'll just invest privately. What they didn't quite understand is that what VCs do is not really finance, uh, which 
I could probably get killed for saying, but what, what we, we obviously we are financial investors and we do financial analyses, but you know, when I invest and decide on a company, what I'm looking at is not, you know, a ratio analysis and their past stock performance, right? I'm looking at the team. I'm looking at the market. I'm looking at um, their product and their technology differentiation. It's a much more, on the ground advisory active type of investing and if you don't, I'm a big believer that if you don't do that active not activist but active investing where you can really be helpful to add value to the company rather than just throwing money around then it's not going to really work with the kind of returns and successes that you want it to be so i do think we have a market here where there's just money everywhere and entrepreneurs can get, you know, the financing risk has lowered a bit because there are so many people you can get money for. That yeah. does not necessarily correlate with two things. It doesn't correlate with there being that many more smart investments or companies. And it doesn't necessarily, although there are more, just because um, unlike the, the last tech, what people would call bubble or, or it kind of um, phase, right, back in the late 90s, early 2000s, tech is clearly here to stay now, right, across all industries. And so mm -hmm. it's a much more, um, so there are more opportunities. Um, but it also doesn't necessarily correlate with it being smart to take dumb money, right? So a lot of entrepreneurs now, because there's a lot of money, will chase valuations or will take massive amounts of capital that they don't actually need at the time they need it. And that ends up coming back to hurt them. The, the, so that's one major point. The second major point is I really believe, and this differs, every VC has their own opinion, that there are two ways to do venture capital and really be successful. I think uh, uh, one way is to be a seed investor, which you guys have a ton of experience with uh, as, a, as, a, as a network. Um, and from, you know, as a seed investor, you make like 100, you know, 200 bets. So it's interesting. It's it's hard to be. I would argue that it's very hard to be a real advisor and board member when you're making a hundred bets and have a hundred you know or so companies. But I do believe you're kind of basically uh, spray and pray is what a lot of people call it. Is you know you're putting your bets on a bunch of different things, and as long as one or two of them is a Facebook, and a few of them don't you know do well, and a few of them lose, you'll do well. The other way I think to be an investor is to be able to fund the company, you know, is to through its life cycle. So being able to do seed and A and B and C and really being able to focus not on making a ton of bets without necessarily picking the best one or having an industry specialty or having a real special value add that where you're spending special time or expertise with the company, but instead to really say we're going to rather than kind of play the odds in a way, we're going to actually spend time on thesis and we're gonna have a somewhat concentrated portfolio focused on the things that, are, that we know, one, are built well with a great team, and two, that we believe we can help make even more successful with our participation. So yeah, there's risk in any startup, but let's increase our odds and decrease our risk as best we can as a team, as a, as a partnership, as an investor, and as an entrepreneur together. Um, and then you, and you stick with that company and help it navigate. So basically, you pick the horse and then not just drink mint julep on the sideline during the race. You help it win the race at the same time. And, and so I think that those are the real two best models. So folks who just focus on a particular series who just focus on one sector, very niche sector only. Um, I don't really uh, believe in those, or one. a lot of folks focus on just one geography. 
I think those models are a bit outdated and have over the years proven not effective. So you are more on the camp of the spray and pray model? No, not at all. So sine wave is a very concentrated, that's why we do seed A, B, and upwards. Um, so we are a pretty concentrated portfolio. We develop specific theses in the enterprise space, so let's say data or cloud or security or edge computing, or we, we might do health IT or education software or lending platforms. We'll develop a very specific thesis on where we think these in, in the cooperation with some of the big partners in our ecosystem, the big corporates and strategics and other VCs, and say, this is where we think an industry is going. Let's find the best team and the best players solving it in the way that we think is the right way to solve it. And uh, that has the biggest potential, one, to have an impact, and two, to be a big you know, return financially. So that was, so that was really my uh, conclusion when you said that you were, uh, when you prefaced the conversation by saying that you are focusing on these government networks, so you have a special unfair advantage in the government relationships and so forth. So I guess I'm a little bit thrown off by the comment you made that, um, you know, very niche funds um, is not where um, your bet is or the ship has sailed, something like that you said, which um, is contrary to what you're saying. You are a niche fund. You are focused on Specific Absolutely not. You are so I'll on... stop you right there because that would be 100% of a wrong impression. So let me explain. Um, first, I would say, let me explain who our strategic network is. So our strategic network uh, that we work with, our ecosystem of partners and investors and people that we bring our startups to both as to be customers of and also to be partnered with, include a bunch of different buckets. So obviously we work with the other big VC funds, but the really interesting ones fall in four buckets. The first are your typical GovTech folks, like your Lockheeds and General Dynamics and SAICs, all of whom have massive uh, private sector businesses as well. The second bucket are the big tech solutions firms, like Booz, Deloitte, Accenture, McKinsey, who have both commercial and public sector businesses. The mm -hmm. third would be the big tech companies. So we work with Amazon and Oracle and Google and Cisco and Samsung. We also work with big industrials, which a lot of VCs don't always do. Um, and then the, and all of these guys have massive public sector practices and massive commercial practices, right? And they tend to be the same things, which people don't always realize. And then the last bucket is the government agencies, which we will work with across the board. In terms of the kind of investments we make, so when you think about the kinds of commercial companies that have to think about the public sector, in terms of looking at the public sector as a sales vertical, anything in enterprise tech applies data, cloud, security, systems, infrastructure, cloud, you name, edge, IoT, AI, pick your buzzword. Everything that is a software platform applies. The government is kind of like the Fortune 1000 in one thing, right? Because there's so many mm -hmm. different entities and so much money they spend and they're such big buyers. Um, and of course, in working with the governments, we're also working with commercials. So when I introduce a startup to Amazon, they're working with both the commercial side and the public side. So they're getting both markets at the same time. The second, um, the second, you know, the other, some of the other examples, let's say folks dealing with like regulatory or unique opportunities or non-dilutive free capital, everything in education, everything in transportation, everything in financial services, everything in health IT and systems. I mean, but with biopharma and, and devices, that also applies, but we don't um, specialize in that as a firm, those two areas. But um, all of those things apply to, to what we do. So we are, our actual ability to invest across sectors and across industries is huge. We don't do, um, 
sorry, we don't do um, we don't do you know pure consumer plays, and we don't do media like ad techie type of stuff. Mm -hmm. Those are probably the only two areas that don't really apply to us, but everything else does. It's a really, and one of the key pillars of our fund is one, not only do we have to be able to help you in that ecosystem on both the commercial and public sector side, uh, but also we need, you have to be a commercial company. So if you're focused on the government or built for the government or looking at the government or from the government necessarily team-wise only, then that's actually not something we'd invest in. So we're looking more for like a Cisco as a startup, not a Lockheed as a startup. So it's so one of these cases um, where, sure. Let's focus on um, the seed uh, stage activity. So before sure. we can look at Series A, um, as I said, there is a whole segmentation going on in um, in the you know pre-Series A ecosystem. Where exactly do you peg your seed stage activities? How early are you willing to go and what metrics do you use? Let's take the example of B2B SaaS, which probably is your primary business model in the portfolios that you're uh, looking at. What, uh, what metrics would be uh, requirements for you to engage? You know, the same metrics you look at at any other stage are the same metrics you look at at a seed Stage, right. So you're looking for team is the most important thing. I mean, I think you you've probably interviewed several VCs. No, I'm who talking said the about exact... uh, ARR, MRR, ARR metrics. The team, all that is kind of standard. That's oh, not what yeah. I'm looking well, for. I'm looking... I think any I think any investor who's talking to you about revenue metrics at a seed stage is being stupid and ridiculous. It's like putting a finger in the wind. This is going to be a billion dollar company tomorrow. It's like. Um, no, not you have no idea, right? Um, uh, you could make a justification that it will be and a justification that it won't, and neither one of them is grounded in any kind of reality. Uh, so in terms of a seed stage company, you know, whether they have revenue or not is not the key thing. And, and I don't think there's a single VC who's at least that I've worked with or that I, I view um, highly who thinks about, who focuses on revenue numbers at a seed stage or even requires There are that. plenty of VCs focusing heavily on revenue numbers at the seed stage right now. Well, I would, I remember I qualified it as who I know and who I respect. So, no, I, I think, I, I, I beg to differ. There are plenty of good VCs who are also focusing on revenue numbers at the seed stage, partly because there is a lot of bootstrapping going on, and, and people are doing so because they can, because they're getting access to deals that are, you know, making lots of work, lots of progress on their own, on their own well, time, so getting to serious ARR numbers before coming into financing. So I, I think, I think that, you're, would be, that would be maybe definitional then where we're disagreeing, because if you have significant revenue and then you go to raise, you're probably going to raise a, you know, Seven million dollar or more. Or $5 no, no, no. I think you're. So uh, here's where I'm going to be very specific on the question I'm asking you. Sure. There are companies that there are uh, seed stage VCs that are looking for a million dollar annual revenue run rate, eighty thousand dollars or thereabouts in monthly revenue run rates before they're willing to put in one to three million dollars. And there are there are small funds. Because you know the large Series A's of seven million dollars require that you get to a certain stage and and are ready for that kind of valuation. But there are funds that are you know willing to put in 
two, three million dollars, and there's a whole segmentation that has happened between small Series A players and large Series A players. So that's another, yet another level of segmentation that happens, and those, many of those funds are requiring a one million ARR uh, before they fund. There's, you know, if you look at the post-seed or pre-Series A, there are players who are looking for, you know, 40,000 maybe MRR, and then there are people who are looking for uh, whatever, 40,000, 50,000 MRR, but then what they'll, maybe what they have, what the company hasn't figured out is how to accelerate, and, and they're willing to either take the acceleration risk or not, and, and there are lots of players in, in that spectrum as well. So, you know, what I find uh, in, in how you're kind of painting things with a broad brush is, is lack of precision, and I'm looking for precision. Well, I actually think the precision is bull is kind of what I would say. I'm not saying it doesn't exist in the market and that people don't try to say, oh, I, you need this amount of money for, to be interesting to us. But what I found is when anyone does that, they make exceptions to the rule all the time. Because when you're looking at a deal, you're looking at specific qualities. If you're a seed stage, now I do think the distinction between you have a technology I can use and see and touch like your past pure beta or you've got into your beta already so that there's a tech that I can really analyze rather than just an idea. That I see as a, a, a distinction. Some folks will be willing to just bet on an idea. Some really want to see that the tech is at least developed enough that there's a little bit less tech risk, for example. In the consumer space, they might be looking for a certain number of users or something just to show that it does have consumer interest and traction and you have metrics. They might be looking for various metrics or various technical milestones to show that the thesis is working or the product is working. But if I believe you're in your team and in your product and in your idea, and I'm arguing at a seed stage, whether you have 50,000 or 100,000 or a million, that is not, to me at least, a reasonable type of analysis that has much um, substance to it. Because there if is, it's the right there's team- There's plenty right of that, that kind of analysis going on in the market right now. And, and frankly, I don't see a problem with that either because there is a big difference between selling a piece of, well, first and foremost, there's a big difference between trying to just creating a piece of technology without much customer traction. There's a big difference between a piece of technology that does have some amount of customer validation. There's a big difference between technology that has actual paying customers. There's a big difference between a company that has paying customers of a certain, um, you know, scale in that people have actually figured out how to acquire customers, not just one of two of customers, but really, you know, customers in numbers. These are all de-risking. Every stage, stage of that is a level of de-risking that makes a company more attractive to investors. This is, I, I don't see anything, any problem in that. I think these are very reasonable demarcations no, that people are making and people you're, are choosing totally to... Hold on, let me finish. People are making choices of playing in different stages of that de-risking. I think that that is what's happening because there is so much money operating in the early stages right now. This is happening, and, and this is a good thing, I think. So I think you're totally misinterpreting what I'm saying, because all of the things you just said, I 100% agree with, even though I didn't so agree I'm, with My question, you're not answering my question. What is your, what, what stage of this, you know, continuum of de-risking, where are you playing? Well, I've said that a million times. So let me be clear. To say that any of these factors or things you'd look at are fine. 
to build an investment thesis on I'm only investing if you only have these factors because different companies don't grow in different ways or different teams you wouldn't have a different kind of faith in because of their background or different technologies just because they're so key and you think you can accelerate them so much, you wouldn't bet on it even if they had non-paying customers or paying customers or this much revenue. Of course, we look at all of the factors that are based on risk. And all of these things are reasonable factors that any VC would look at, including us. But to create an investment thesis that says, I'm only investing if this one or two, whatever it is, factors exist, I don't think is logical. So what I'm telling you is all of those factors are important. And we invest whether you have revenue or not, whether you have the technology built yet or not. But it depends. If you're a brilliant engineer in a space that you have expertise in and have worked in, and we have, you know, either an existing relationship or a faith in your ability to build this or real confidence that you and the team you've built are going to get there, then that might be good enough for us. In other cases, we might say, oh, you know, this is a really tough market. We think something should be here, but this isn't necessarily going to win over that. We'd like to see a little more traction because that's the risk analysis we made in that particular case, which is fine. Right. So, that's, so, so that gives me an idea of where you're playing because I don't know you. You know, I don't know you from Adam, right? I'm just getting to know you. There are a lot of firms who don't answer the question the way you're answering. You, you, your take is that every firm answers the question the same way. That is not true. Um, because I talk to a lot of firms on a continuous basis. No, I don't agree. I said exactly that they answer it differently, but I just don't think that some of those answers are an intelligent way to look at things. Well, so I gave opinion. you my way, and you're free yeah. to disagree with what I think. I think that there are No, I, I'm, not, I'm not here to agree or disagree. I'm just trying to understand what you do and how you do what you do and what is your sweet spot and how you analyze the market, and, and, and that's all. I, I'm not trying to make a value judgment so, on, yeah, so we, on we what you firm. do. We, so, so maybe to be clear, we aren't a firm that has, we'll only invest in this, this, or this. We will only invest at this revenue number, or we'll only invest if you've built this many things or things like that. We're looking at the holistic picture. So if we like the team and the market and the technology, and we believe you've built it or can build it or going to have the traction or already have the traction, that all goes into valuation, of course, right? If you don't, you know, yeah. we might make a bet on something without traction. Right. And, and that's the fact valuation. that you're saying that you do that is not what all firms do. There are a lot of firms who won't touch deals like that. That's what I'm pointing out to you is that I, I don't disagree, but you asked me, do I agree with that? I don't agree that that's a smart judgment call. I don't think that's a smart way to segment the market. Let's put it that way. Okay, I well, let's not make value judgment. I'm not making a value judgment on what you do, and I don't need you to make value judgments on what other people are doing. What I'm looking for is to understand what you do. And, uh, yeah, I told you, you know, we'll look at everything. You, yes, I got it. I got it. We don't need to harp, uh, uh, harp on this topic anymore. So let's, let's switch topics. What about geography? You said you operate out of Washington, D.C. and Silicon Valley, but you invest nationally, or what, what's the sweet spot? Yes, so we, we invest in all companies across the country. So we yeah. have investments in Boston. We have, we've looked at, although we haven't pulled the trigger in New York yet, we've looked in Israel. We, we have a ton of in Valley investments, some in Washington. So, you know, some of the mm -hmm. big hubs. Um, because we tend to invest alongside some of the big Valley guys, a lot of our deals end up being in Silicon Valley because a lot of them mm -hmm. like their deals to be local. I'm um, in yep. California, um, but yep. we're, we're geographically, again, going to my point, 
we're thinking about team technology and opportunity and our ability to add value. So that kind of that kind of those kind of metrics could could really exist anywhere. So and we don't think that geography is a necessary hindrance to a company's growth. So we will look in different places. Um, sometimes, you know, by virtue of we, we can't help you in that market because we don't know them as well or we the other you know our partners aren't as interested or we can't get you business because you're located there then it might rule out some places but we're pretty open to looking at all different kinds of geographies but domestic because we deal with the yeah. um i guess i wouldn't say that they're all domestic companies that's not true we look at companies from abroad but where their target um market is the is the u.s market uh, that's, mm -hmm. and domestic markets could be either international or domestic but if it's an international company we're looking for them to be targeting the, the domestic market. Mm -hmm. so and talk about, uh, talk about your current portfolio. What are highlights of your current portfolio? portfolio? What have you invested in? What are, you know, what are um, your sweet spot investments, let's say? Yeah, sure. So to give you a sense of, this will maybe also elaborate the, how we think about different stages and sizes and also how we think about um, the fact that we're not at all a niche player, that we have a very broad portfolio. So for example, one of our, our deals is a, is a later stage deal now called Databricks. So everyone knows a lot of folks mm -hmm. in the enterprise tech industry know Databricks. Uh, we did yeah. that with Andreessen and NEA. Um, and that is, they're the guys who basically built the Spark algorithm and then created a, um, a software layer on top of that to, to provide um, an enterprise service to customers using Spark. So we're investors in Databricks. So that's a very broad platform of data analytics applies to very different, you know, to all kinds of industries and sectors, very much a commercial company, right? That's a commercial team with a business focus that, but also all of the same data problems that the private sector has, so does the public, right? And so that's why we would be involved, why we got involved in Databricks. Another example on the, you know, one that's very early now is we actually have a stealth company where we literally bet on the team before they don't have any revenue, although they did have, um, they, so in the edge computing space. So uh, mm -hmm. a company called, I mean, there's, there's enough information. It's a company called Dyshow and they're working in the edge computing space. Um, there's not a lot of information about what they do yet, although that's coming um, because they're still in stealth. But in that case, we bet on, you know, the team members because we, we've, we, we've known them, uh, we know of their history and their kind of traction having built startups before. Um, they didn't have the tech built yet, um, but because we have a big thesis on edge computing and their thesis and their kind of outlook and perspective on both what the tech should look like and where the market should go was something that really um, fit with us. And so we ended up betting on that team, you know, pre-revenue, pre-traction, even pre-full tech, actually. And that company's been growing. So soon you'll probably, the markets will probably hear more about them as they come out of the, the stealth box. And maybe taking, uh, so those are, yeah, that's another example of, you know, a broad um, technology platform. Another about, case that's a different, yeah? Go ahead. Go ahead. Please go ahead. Uh, one that's different, for example, is we invested in Upskill, which is actually, Upskill does a software that used to be called APX Lab. Some people may formally remember them as that. Um, and what they do is they do a software platform for wearables. So in manufacturing, in field services, in logistics, um, rather than having employees with tons of paper and using their hands to source data, or if it's, you know, something like uh, logging of, of video or photos of what you're doing, 
they allow you to do that with wearables. And so they significantly increase productivity, significantly decrease um, safety concerns, um, are able to integrate with your bigger system. And so that's much more of a like in, in, in a, um, you know, the, the folks using the upskills technology are actually on the floor in factories or out in, you know, a, an oil field doing mm-hmm. safety repairs and things like that. So pretty broad um, spectrum. So uh, you said this is your first fund, right? Mm-hmm. Correct. Have you had any exits yet? No, we've been investing for about a year. So, and okay. because we invest early. early. Yeah, yeah. I got it. <laughs> so um, next question is about unicorn mania. How mm-hmm. does a seed investor um, protect himself, herself, uh, themselves in the event that there is huge amounts of capital being raised. You've said that you follow through uh, your investments, um, you know, seed series A, series B, but how far can you go with that with a small fund, given that the trend right now is raising huge amounts of money? It's a fantastic question and, and a, a really difficult one um, that I think all VCs think about, right? Um, and have to think about when they're constructing their portfolio. And, and SineWave is even more unique for that question because we are a small fund who chases whales, right? Because so, we invest mm-hmm. with some of the big guys who are looking for big ones. There are some investors, angel investors or seed investors, who will, you know, look to put a million in and then sell the, you know, and then sell the company for 15 million or something, which is a great exit for, for an angel who put that in and for some returns. But for us, we're really looking for the much bigger company, right? Because of the nature of who we invest with. So we, we have that problem in particular because we play with big boys yes, and we're, I noticed that. Right? Yeah. So it's, so it's, so it's a unique challenge. So we do have a unique functionality in our fund where our investor, we actually have more money in our fund than is on the surface in that we allow our investors kind of have buckets that they put in in addition into our companies to help us grow, you know, at, you know, so that the fund's actually bigger than it seems, which is kind of a model that some VCs use. A lot of them call it an opportunity fund or a sidecar vehicle, things mm-hmm. like that. But, but to get to the main question is, so I do think uh, one of the trends, at least that we've deployed is, you know, at a seed or an A round, which is, you know, we will do, you know, a bit larger check than we might have normally, right? So that we, we have ownership earlier so that the later, later dilution isn't as impactful. Also by investing on the earlier side, so the seed A, B type of stage, because the jumps in valuation have been so significant recently, I think that's partially because to, to what you were talking about, you know, the traction can be very quick. Also, um, some of the money that's being thrown around increases the valuation significantly. Uh, mm-hmm. If you're in early, you're, you, wait, you know, about 10 years ago, your dilution risk was, was a little bit less, was a little bit more significant round to round than it is now. Because when a company is doing well, the jumps are so large in valuation between the different stages uh, that even if you didn't do any of your pro rata, you'd still own um, a good amount of the company. And to be and to be honest, you know, of course, sometimes in later rounds, those later, later investors put on, you know, heavy terms and things like that. Usually that's hard to do when a company is doing exceptionally well. Um, but if they're doing exceptionally well uh, and we own a little bit 
you know, and our ownership is what it is and we can't participate at the, you know, $60 billion Uber round or whatever, then, you know, it's unfortunately the situation we're in as a smaller fund when it gets to that stage. And then you sell at that point? Do you sell out to the later stage funds? Um, it's a question. It's a good question. I have seen, it's and, and, and it's actually a trend that we're seeing. I have seen not even just the seed guys, but I've seen some of the earlier VCs, even the big VCs. Yes, uh, it's a trend to, that, is, that I'm seeing the... as well. And, and I think it's a, it's a trend that is an, almost like a requirement because otherwise you can't play this game because if SoftBank comes in with $880 billion and every company's exit path is SoftBank, you know, at some point you're going to have to sell out, to, you know? Yeah, and I do think also if you think about it just from a where is the value of a VC to a startup, right? When a startup gets to, to a, you know, Series D and upward, um, where they're really an established, maybe even higher than that, let's say E or something, because a lot of these massive rounds are even bigger, um, they're really quite established, right? They've got thousands, or hundreds, certainly hundreds, if not thousands of employees, They've got a big board. They're operating the same kind of value that a VC would give you in helping you build a team, helping you deal with early stage issues, helping you source talent. At that stage, you've got anyone you want helping you, right? Across And lots yeah. of people who have the expertise at building already established yeah. companies. So even the, the for a VC to, to want to to, 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 I'm not necessarily want, but to sell to one of those bigger ones when their time frame, most VCs, at least, you know, in my experience, you know, 10, 12 years is okay for us to wait. But, you know, if it starts getting 15 years, like you're seeing with some of these startups now, then the VCs do get pressure from their investors, their LPs, yeah. to exit. And so I think at that stage to sell, I actually think that's okay because you're, you've added your value, you've done your work. There are now other players who can, who can do that, who can do the new stage of work for the company. Um, yeah. And it makes sense to move on. Yeah, this is very, uh, very much a dominant trend right now, and and people are making different decisions on when to sell. But I think the, you know, the hyper segmentation of the early stage business is also resulting in in a lot of exits into the even Series A, sometimes Series B, Series C, definitely Series D kind of uh, stages. People are getting out. Basically, the early stage guys are getting out. Well, yeah. Yanev, this was a very interesting conversation. I pushed you quite a bit, but I, I thought it was a great conversation. Yeah, I enjoyed it. It's good. There's lots of different opinions, and it's important for everyone in the 1 million by 1 million network to hear all exactly. of them. Exactly. And, and I'm a very opinionated person, but I'm not trying to, <laughs> well, you, you, you know. One, you, met, you met an equally opinionated person on this call. So we're, we're, yeah, we're I'm, I'm fine with, <laughs> what I'm trying to capture is people's opinions, not impose my value judgment on, on what people yeah. are doing no, right it's now. Good. It's good. <laughs> all right. Well, great. Uh, thank you for being on the show, folks. Those of you who are listening, if you're enjoying these uh, episodes, Please go to iTunes and review them, and we'll be back with, to you with more. Thank you very much. Thanks, all. Bye.